Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at epiphanyligonier.org. Today's sermon is about a theological truism that is the spiritual equivalent of a colonoscopy. <laughs> I mean, we all know what a colonoscopy is, and it's good, and when the doctor says get one, get one, but it's also miserable. There's the fasting and the cleaning yourself out liquid, all those things. Nobody likes a colonoscopy, but when the doctor says get one, well, we should probably get one. And so the phenomenon I am talking about today is a spiritual colonoscopy of sorts. Um, it's ultimately a good thing that I'm going to share about with you, but it's also the very definition of unpleasant and inconvenient and, um, well, it doesn't mean that, it, that it's fun. Because one of the hardest things about being a follower of Jesus is that sometimes God intervenes in our lives and takes something precious from us that we love but that's ultimately bad for us. I think of this famous quote from the political world, right? I'll give you my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. You know, I, I'd say it like Charlton Heston, but I can't do a good Charlton Heston voice. And I'm telling you that quote not to quote about um, or to comment about the political world, but it's a helpful way of understanding how each of us has a thing that we cling to with our cold, dead hands that God wants to pry out of our cold, dead hands without our consent most of the time. For most people, it's an obvious thing like drugs or alcohol. And, and people have these stories about God intervening in their lives to take away uh, their addiction. Uh, in 12-step groups, you know, people will reflect with gratitude for the times that they wrapped their car around a tree or the time that they spent behind bars in prison or the intervention that sent them into rehab. Because what happened, they will reflect on later with time and prayer, is that their higher power orchestrated their recovery in such a way that was uh, life-saving, but also maybe catastrophic at the same time. But sometimes God orchestrates these interventions to take away the things we love that are bad for us with things that maybe aren't so obvious. And in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he imagines a situation like this, where he imagines a mother named Pam who has an unhealthy obsession with her son, and this was a son who died when he was still a young boy. And Lewis imagines this woman as a, as a tragic figure who took a perverse pleasure in her grief. Uh, because she was a, a, a grieving mother, she had a chip on her shoulder that allowed her to, to um, relieve, release herself from any other responsibility on earth. Um, because she was this consuming mother figure. She was um, inwardly focused, solipsistic, some people would say. And Lewis imagines her righteous anger against God 
over the loss of her son. And this woman, this character Pam, became so inwardly focused on her loss as a mother that she neglected to be a mother to her daughter. And she neglected to be a wife to her husband. Uh, she neglected to be a daughter to her heavenly father. And so all of this comes together as she is wrestling with uh, God, essentially, over the loss of her son. And um, Pam's brother, who's there, is sort of a, a voice of the Holy Spirit, tries to reason with her, you know. And he says, God had to take away that object of your love so that out of your loneliness something beautiful could emerge. And he says that, you know, it was even better for Michael to return to heaven to be with his heavenly father before his earthly mother could, well, uh, do damage. And that that reasoning does not sit well with Pam, the mother in the story. She says to no avail, do you honestly believe that God, that a God of love would keep me from seeing my son? And the pattern we see in scripture and the pattern that we read um, in the testimony of Christians from ages past is, yes, a, a God would keep a grieving mother from seeing her son if seeing the son would ultimately be bad for her. Because the reality is that sometimes God takes away the things we love from our cold, dead hands. And he, he takes away these things if they are indeed bad for us. Uh, Job understood this, I think, more than anyone else uh, outside of Jesus himself. Because after Job loses everything in this great cosmic wager between God and Satan, Job's take on the whole matter is that the Lord gave and the Lord take away uh, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's Job 121. And Job's faith is rooted in the idea that we're not in control of the serendipitous good things that come our way. And Job also believes that we're not in control of all the ills that come our way either. And so for people who live their lives out of control, like us, we can either rail against the God of the universe for taking away that thing which is precious for us, even if it is bad for us. Or we can perhaps accept that the God of the cross, who is our co-sufferer, has something better in mind for us. That's a really heavy introduction <laughs> to our reading in Acts today, but perhaps it's good that we should have an a heavy introduction to our reading from Acts chapter 7, because in our reading today, uh, one of the church's first deacons, a man named Stephen, is going to be arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin, that same uh, religious council that orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion. And as a result of this encounter, Stephen will become the first Christian martyr, the first person to die specifically for their faith in Jesus and his resurrection. And I want to speak about Jesus's, um, I want to speak today about Stephen's accusation, um, because in his sermon, he's going to accuse the Sanhedrin of something very specific. And, and what we're going to find is that that specific accusation hits the Sanhedrin and the religious authorities of Jesus's day in a very soft and weak place. Um, Stephen is going to attack the thing which his accusers hold most precious. Stephen is going to try and pry something from the cold, dead hands of the Sanhedrin, and the result is that their cold, dead hands will pick up rocks and execute him. So, I want to talk about Stephen's uh, sermon today. And when we were last in Acts, to kind of catch you up to what's happening and, and to give you context, uh, when we were last going through Acts together, Peter and John had been arrested for preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection. And they were let go with a warning, which, you know, was nice, but they promptly prayed 
and said, you know what, we're going to ignore that warning. We're going to keep talking about Jesus and his death and resurrection. And at this point, the church had grown in Jerusalem to a massive scale. Uh, that about 5,000 men had joined the church as believers in Jesus' resurrection. And that number multiplies out significantly when you include the wives, the children, and the servants as all of their households. So this is a real megachurch that has popped up in Jerusalem with thousands and thousands of people. And the temple authorities are, are noticing this, and they're getting angry, and they're getting anxious about it, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And so they start bringing in more apostles, not just Peter and John, but others too. They start calling them in for questioning, and many of them are beaten and threatened and whipped. But the church is growing nonetheless, and the church has its own growing pains too. People were lying and inflating the value of their gifts to the church for like social clout within the church. They would say, hey, I sold my house and gave all the profits to the church, but they kept some profits on the side for themselves. And uh, well, God was striking people down like that. And so there's a real sense that God wanted the church to sort of be a pure and, and holy place and that God was behind the growth of the church. And there were issues of race that was pop, that were popping up too, right? Because some widows were getting preferential treatment from the church's ancient Meals on Wheels program because of their ethnicity. Um, and, and that matter had to be taken care of too because God shows no favoritism. And so what we find is that the Holy Spirit is at work and the church is growing and they're working through their growing pains. And the Jewish establishment um, is getting anxious because the disciples... And the apostles are preaching with boldness, and, and they're getting anxious at the size of this movement that's happening under their wing. And this all comes to a head when one of these early church leaders named Stephen, a deacon, is hauled before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Stephen had made some enemies of some prominent rabbis, and, and he had been winning theological debates against these rabbis about Jesus' resurrection, and his opponents were um, enraged and looking for revenge. And you can read about this at the end of Acts chapter 6. And so they drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin and charge him with speaking ill of the great temple of Jerusalem, and in Jesus' name, threatening to destroy this temple. And, and if you remember back in the Gospels, this is the charge that finally struck Jesus too. Jesus said, destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And someone twisted that to say, Jesus wants to destroy the temple of Jerusalem. And well, that was the thing they got him with. And now the same charge is leveled against Stephen. And so the San Sanhedrin says to Stephen, hey, Stephen, make a defense of yourself. And what our reading is today in Acts chapter 7 is that defense. It is that sermon. It's a long sermon, and Stephen is a long-winded guy. This chapter has 60 verses in it. And just for the sake of brevity, I didn't produce for you the first half of Stephen's theological discourse. Uh, if you are uh, reading along in a, in a church bulletin situation, uh, if you're listening online, you can read it yourself because what I'm going to say applies to this. But the sermon that Stephen preaches is a legal defense. Uh, it's his legal defense in front of the Sanhedrin. It's long. <laughs> And it's a survey of the Old Testament from Abraham to Joseph to Moses and Solomon and so on. And to spare you the long and storied exploration of this long sermon, I'm going to give you a very brief summary. Because Stephen uses these Old Testament stories to make two points abundantly clear in his sermon. Here are the two points that Stephen wants to make. God raises up saviors to save people that the people of Israel regularly reject. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is that God is unbound by the walls of the temple in Jerusalem. That God uh, does not necessarily call the temple his home. And if you read the whole of Acts 7, you can see how Stephen makes those theological points. And he makes them very convincingly. He talks about how, you know, Abraham didn't have a home necessarily. He didn't own a tract of land until he bought a uh, uh, a gravestone, a grave, a tomb for his family. He didn't own anything like that. And in the same way, God is sort of a God of all the places, not just one the place. And um, not only that, but the Psalms talk about how um, the, the earth is God's footstool and he does not dwell in the houses of men. And, and Stephen makes these two points and you can hear as a result of these two points an uproar building in the audience listening to him speak. Because those two points are, are perfectly designed to, to sort of stick a finger in the eye of his accusers. Because there was this common notion at the time that God's favor and blessing was tied to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And that's not an unreasonable assumption if you're an ancient person, because the temple was really an ancient wonder. The walls surrounding the temple in Jerusalem were something like 150 feet high. I mean, we're talking like 14 stories tall. I don't know where the closest 14-story tall building is to us. I think you have to go all the way into Pittsburgh to find a 14-story tall building. Now imagine a 14-story tall building that acted as a wall that went around 25 football fields in size, right? And workers literally, they're flattening the top of a mountain with hand tools and pack animals to put this temple at its apex. And the de decorations in this massive, glorious temple were made of precious materials, bronze, marble, gold, silver, beautiful imported hardwoods, gemstones. Um, no valuable was too valuable to worship a god with in the temple. And so to put it all in perspective, right, to help you understand the size of the temple, imagine the great ancient pyramid of Giza, right, this ancient wonder of the world. Now, if you were to pick up the ancient pyramid of Giza, you could pick it up and you could set it inside this massive walled open air courtyard of the temple. That's how big it was, <laughs> right? 25 football fields is a lot of square footage. Imagine a 14 story tall wall that goes all the way around the pyramid of Giza. Right? The temple inspired this kind of awe and wonder, and the people associated that with religious transcendence. And the Jewish establishment of the day, the Sanhedrin in particular, thought that affiliation with the temple meant you were automatically on God's side. The temple was, to misuse a common term, the temple was too big to fail. Of course, God would never let anything happen to his temple, nor would he let anything happen to the faithful, loving, devoted people who were taking care of it. And so there was this sense of assurance that the people of Israel had, that many of them had, which revolved around their association with this beautiful, ancient, architecturally beautiful temple. Uh, they were God's people because they lived in God's land and worshiped in God's house, so their status with God was solidified. But Stephen knows his Old Testament, and he knows that's not true. Stephen knows that God is unbound by the walls of the temple. And Stephen knows that God frequently raises up leaders to save Israel, and Israel turns around and rejects those leaders. And in our reading today, Stephen cites the example of Moses, someone who God clearly picked to lead the people out of Egypt. 
you know, let my people go and the like. But they, the people fully rejected uh, Moses and they fully rejected God by proxy and instead made a cow out of gold and worshipped it instead. Not only this, but when Moses and the people, they kind of get back on track for a little bit, but they, they didn't just have this big old massive 16-story, 14-story um, football field-sized temple. Uh, before that, the people of Israel had a big fancy party tent called the Tabernacle, which served as an old-school temple. And uh, Stephen knows that even though they used to have the Tabernacle, that was no help. Uh, they still rejected God's commandments and worshipped other gods, even when they believed God was in the tent with them, traveling with them in their nomadic lifestyle. Which is to say, it's a very clear pattern in the Old Testament that simply worshiping at the right place and in the right way isn't what makes someone right with God. It wasn't about faith and good works. It was about ethnicity and proper worship. And Stephen, if you read the whole of the sermon, lays it out methodically by recalling Old Testament examples for the Sanhedrin to recall for themselves. And this all comes to a head when Stephen gets to the end of his sermon of sorts and he lets the Sanhedrin have it. He says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not prosecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. As the country folks say, Dems fighting words, y'all. <laughs> because Stephen has brought out into the air this great flaw in the Sanhedrin theology. It loves the temple and it loves the power and it loves the glory more than it loves God's law and more than it loves God himself. Stephen's sermon is a long theological argument outlining how the Sanhedrin, like Israel in the past, has killed a messenger and a savior from God. They think they're very righteous, but they stand in a long line of people from the Old Testament who got it wrong when God sent a prophet or a savior like Moses. They are not the heroes of the story, bravely keeping the religion going and overseeing proper worship in its temple. They indeed are villains. The text says that these men were enraged at Stephen's accusation, that they were the villains. They gnashed their teeth, which is an ancient way of sort of showing negative anger and emotion. They uh, plugged their ears so they wouldn't have to listen. And they started to shout to drown Stephen out as he was talking. And when Stephen uh, does receive this moment of, of the heavens um, opening up and he gets this uh, beatific vision right before his stoning, he shares with everyone what he sees, that Jesus is standing at God's right hand, and that is the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Sanhedrin. Um, because, um, I'll tell you why in a second, um, but, but he is, he's grabbed, he's led outside the city, he is stoned to death. And this is done because Stephen was being used by God to try to take something away from the people of Israel that they loved, their national and religious pride in the temple. And God was trying to use Stephen to pull it out of their cold, dead hands because that pride that they had was keeping them away from Jesus. It was ultimately bad for them. 
A side note in Stephen's sermon before we move on, I've been pointing out to you in all the sermons we, we've been going through in the book of Acts, I've been pointing out to you how um, in these sermons there are things that are similar. They're the same from week to week. There are three key themes in every sermon in the book of Acts. And um, the, those three key themes are Jesus' death and resurrection, his promise to return and judge the world, and the forgiveness of sins. And I want to point out to you that they're, they're here in our reading today as well. It's just a little harder to see them than we might expect. Um, first thing to notice is that Stephen is the first person to preach about Jesus' death and not explicitly mention the resurrection in his sermon, right? You go back through Acts chapter 7, and, and Stephen doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead. He, he mentions that he was crucified and killed, but not that he rose from the dead. And there are a couple of reasons why that could be. I think my favorite explanation on the matter is that he just didn't get to finish speaking before he was executed. And it certainly seems like Stephen had more to say, but... He does mention seeing Jesus, the righteous one, the son of man at the right hand of the father. And also the people who dragged Stephen before the Sanhedrin and had him arrested. One of their great complaints was that he was preaching about the resurrection. And so that's back in Acts chapter six. Um, so there's a sense in which the resurrection is an implicit, it's implicit in the reading. Though the resurrection doesn't play into Stephen's main points necessary. It's there, but it's maybe not as explicit as it is in some of the other sermons we're talking about. Second thing that's addressed in all of these sermons, um, Stephen does address the crowd about the forgiveness of sins. Notice that Stephen, as he dies, is echoing the words that Jesus said when he was dying on the cross, right? Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which sounds a lot like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And so the theme of sin and forgiveness plays out here in a very explicit but tragic way. And the third thing that we've been talking about, of course, in our series here, um, Stephen has a vision where he sees the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And everybody knows this who's hearing it in the ancient world, or at least in the Sanhedrin. Everyone hearing this knows that Stephen is using the language of the Old Testament book of Daniel, specifically the Son of Man imagery from like Daniel chapter 7 and other apocalyptic passages. Um, everyone knows that Stephen is equating this person to Jesus. And this son of man language pointed to a figure, this Old Testament language pointed to a figure in Daniel who had come to fix and judge the world. And so all these three themes are there. They're still there in our reading, right? Um, Jesus died and rose again. He's coming back to judge and fix the world. And there's forgiveness of sins for anyone who has done wrong. All of these things are here. They just may not be as explicit as we would like them to be and, and frankly, the, all the other sermons we're going to look through, it's addressed in a fuller way. And so now let me get back to the main point of the sermon about how um, God often takes away the things that we love that are bad for us. You know, a part of the process that God uses to fix the world is offering his divine perspective on the things that you and I love, which are bad for us. And again, people think of this in terms of God's interventions like addictions or bad habits, but they're wrong. Um, because in Stephen's instance, God used this opportunity to try to take away um, the members of the Sanhedrin. Um, he tried to tell them that their Bible reading was off. Their obsession with the temple was wrong. And in fact, unless they repented, they would be counted among the great villains of history. Like the Old Testament Israelites who made a golden calf. They'd be in that camp. And if you know anything about your ancient history, right? Like um, uh, if you know anything about ancient history, you know that about 40 years after this event took place, Stephen was stoned, and then 40 years later, in the year 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus ordered that the temple be completely destroyed as punishment for a failed anti-Roman rebellion. 
And what we learn is that the, 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 the order was that not one stone was to be left on top of another stone. And so this massive 14-story walled-in outdoor temple encompassing the size of 25 football fields where you could, uh, on a space so large, you could set the Pyramid of Giza on the inside of it. Um, all of these things were torn down, all the way down to the very foundation. In fact, many of you um, may have heard of what's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, which is a, a part of this temple that's in Jerusalem now. It's a holy site for the Jewish community where they do uh, regular prayers. That wall was not part of the temple proper. That, that part of the, the, the temple was basically the retaining wall that the original walls had set on top of. So it's not really the temple that, that is this wailing wall. It's just like part of the foundation that wasn't very important. And so this massive ancient thing in the world, um, this massive ancient wonder was ripped from the cold, dead hands of the people of Israel because even though they loved it, it was bad for them. It ultimately kept them from understanding God's love and it became for them an idol so that they could use it as an excuse to ignore God's law. It was bad for them and God took it away in 70 AD. And this idea that God removes from us the things which we love that are ultimately bad for us is what some in the church have called a severe mercy. And I think, you know, I mentioned Lewis earlier in his writing about the great divorce and, and Lewis was really often interested in writing about these severe mercies. Um, Lewis coined the phrase severe mercy in his correspondence with a man named Sheldon uh, Van Auken, uh, Van Auken, V-A-N-A-U-K-E-N, Sheldon Van Auken, um, who goes by the nickname Van. And, and Van wrote about this in a book called Severe Mercy. And he talked about how he had lost his wife to a rare kidney virus uh, and some complications that followed. And in a correspondence with Lewis, um, his insight was that his grief over the death of his wife was related to the idea that he had thought romantic love was the highest human achievement. And he wrestled with the idea of loving a God, of a loving God who took away his wife, who was a Christian. Um, and he came to believe that God had actually granted them both mercy. God had brought his wife into paradise and God had delivered her in that way from the, 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 the pain and the suffering of the kidney disease. But also God had brought him out of a toxic ideology that there was no higher love than romance because that's what he believed. And these were painful, heartbreaking gifts, um, but they were ultimately gifts nonetheless. And as he was processing this grief-tinged theology with Lewis in his letters, Lewis wrote back to Van and said that he had indeed experienced a severe mercy. I'm going off script for a second here because I'm online and I can edit this thing. But as I'm talking to you on the podcast, here's a bonus illustration from Lewis. I think of the, the character Eustace from um, the Narnia series. Eustace, who is presented in the Narnia series, um, uh, I believe it's Prince Caspian. Uh, he is presented as an absolute horrendous person. And one of the curses that comes on him for all of his uh, atrocious and horrendous behavior is that he's turned into a dragon. Uh, and uh, people are scared. People want to kill him. It's not great. And um, when Aslan arrives, you see, on the scene to help Eustace out, um, you know, Aslan says, well, the reason you were turned into a dragon is because you are a dragon uh, on the inside. And now I'm going to um, help you out. And, and Aslan takes his mighty lion paws and he begins to swipe at the scales of the dragon. 
And Eustace cries out in pain because it hurts. It hurts to have um, the the claws of, of Aslan take away that which is uh, you know on him. It causes him pain. But with every swipe of the great lion Aslan's paws, every painful swipe, um, scales and skin are torn away. And eventually all of these things come back and 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 he is the the dragon is removed from Eustace and he's returned to a little boy who is no longer a dragon anymore and all of his defects of character have been muted and taken away and he actually becomes a hero as opposed to a brat you know um Eustace experienced a severe mercy Van experienced a severe mercy um, Pam and the Great Divorce uh, experienced a great uh, severe mercy. The alcoholic who survived having his car wrapped around the tree experienced a severe mercy. The drug addict who lost a job and a romantic partner uh, to go to rehab experienced a severe mercy. And I'll be honest with you, I've even seen God's severe mercy in my own life as well. You know, many of you know that um, before I came to Epiphany, I was working at a church plant in Morgantown, West Virginia. And when that work didn't pan out, when we closed the church plant in December of 2015, uh, I was devastated and I was angry at God. I thought God wanted people to come to know him. I thought God would bless this project if I just stepped out in faith. And it took three years of my life to kind of pull it all together. Um, And I left that project feeling angry and dejected and wondering if God had called me to Morgantown just to chew me up and spit me out. But with time and prayer and, and some healing and some therapy and from the word of some Christians who spoke into my life, I can see how God used that three-year period of my life as a severe mercy. Because when I started that project, I was proud. I wanted to be a big deal. I was going to succeed uh, and everyone in the church would think I was great. And I had all these thoughts because I thought I had all the answers and I thought I knew everything. And I was young and 26 and um, I wasn't interested in learning from other people because I thought I could do that project on my own. And you know that I can be thick-headed and obstinate sometimes, right? I mean, you know this. I'm your pastor. I mean, we're a small church. You know I can be thick-headed and obstinate. And Beth knows this especially. Oh, she's married to me. Pray for her. But imagine if you had gotten Brian, the 26-year-old know-it-all pastor, instead of Brian, the chastened and defeated pastor. You know, like that season of my life marked defeat and frustration and anger at the heavens. And yet it burned off of me so much of this hubris and pride that I didn't even know I had. You know, I'm not quite ready to say that I enjoyed those years or I enjoyed that project, but I am willing to see that God was at work taking away from me something that I loved, my pride. Um, But it was ultimately bad for me. That utter defeat was, for me, a severe mercy. And I've had more and I can tell you about it later, but that's that's one example of God taking away something uh, from me uh, because it was bad for me. Now, two final thoughts as we conclude today. Um, first, I wonder if there's a loss in your past that might be worth revisiting. What might it look like uh, to entertain the idea that maybe God's fingerprints were on a loss that was painful and uh, a defining part of your past? But what if God's fingerprints were on it in a blessed way? Maybe you've experienced this before with your own mix of prayer and hindsight and time. You can see the redemptive work of God happening in your midst. The job loss that you dreaded opened the door to a beloved and blessed career switch. The death of a relative came with an unexpected but timely inheritance that really saved your neck at a time when money was was scarce. You know, Beth and I met some of our best friends in Morgantown because they outbid us on a weekend package to food and a food and beer festival. 
And like, that hurt. That was a real loss for us, <laughs> right? We lost the bid. Um, but we've had these close friends now for something like six years as a result of losing. And frankly, now we look back and say, you know what? Better to have the friends than the loss. But joking aside, Stephen did experience this ultimate loss in our, our reading today, right? The greatest loss, uh, one might imagine, the loss of his life. But not only was Stephen reunited with his loving father, not only was his death, um, not only because he's a Christian, his, his death a simple nap in light of the resurrection to come, but standing by in the crowd assisting with the stoning was a young Jewish Pharisee named Saul, someone we will come to know very well as the book of Acts continues on. And so the church may have indeed lost a deacon, but Stephen's death convinces or works to convince at least one person uh, God, Saul the coat bearer. Um, it, it sets him up for his own severe mercy that comes in a few chapters later in the New Testament. Because God is going to use the situation of Stephen's stoning to take from Saul the coat bearer uh, the most important thing that he has, his identity as a strict, rigorous, law-abiding Pharisee. God takes that away and gives him something better, an encounter with the risen Jesus. And a catalyst for making that happen is the stoning of Stephen. So at least one person will be convinced of this uh, as a result of Stephen's death. And so let's be mindful uh, that we find God not only in our blessings, but in our losses as well. Uh, my friend who preached last week, Mr. John Bryant, has a favorite quote from the writer Flannery O'Connor, and he likes to remind me from time to time that the Lord's mercy burns. It can burn. And that's not, that doesn't mean it's not working. It means it's working right. And the second thing, and then we'll close on our longer than normal sermon today. Let's not forget that the most severe of all mercies comes from God himself. Uh, God who saved the world at the expense of his only son. Uh, to look at Stephen's stoning and Jesus' crucifixion through the lens of this theme of severe mercy is to see that God himself suffers a great loss of his own beloved son, but he does so. Uh, in doing so, he gains back all of his beloved, rebellious, wayward children. To experience a severe mercy is to experience the heart of God, who also suffered a great loss that, to use Lewis's language, eventually led to the emergence of something beautiful. In Acts 7 today, friends, Stephen alerts the religious elite of the fact that they are ultimately villains. They love their temple more than they love their God, and they are too proud to recognize their own faults and failures. And they are enraged at this news to the point of murder in response to his words of warning. But imagine if they had responded in repentance instead. God and his mercy will take away from us those things which we love but are ultimately bad for us. And it's not fun. But when God himself suffers for the sake of bringing mercy to his children, it makes this a better and easier pill to swallow, a less intrusive colonoscopy, if you will. Because if you know that God himself has experienced this interconnection between suffering and mercy, then you may be more likely to respond like Job instead of the Sanhedrin, putting down the rocks and trusting in God's ultimate purpose. Because if Jesus died and rose again, and if he's coming back to fix the world, and if he forgives the sins of anyone who repents, we may find it a bit easier to release the grasp on these precious things from our ever-warming, no longer dead hands. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Pennsylvania.